morning. Uh, my name is Terry Foster. I'm the associate pastor here at Hocassin Baptist Church. And we're grateful that you're here to worship with us this morning. And uh, we're looking forward to what God is going to continue to do in our community as we look to him for direction. And this morning we are in our series called Blended Images. And this is the fifth sermon in this series. The first week we looked at uh, what it means to even think about ourselves in relation as men and women uh, before God. Then we had a week on singleness where we talked about what does it really mean to be single before the Lord. And then the last two weeks we talked about as a man and a woman, what does it mean? What is my identity as a man and as a woman before the Lord? And we talked about that image. We're going to build off that idea today as we go into this idea of marriage and I just want to say from the beginning that the tone of what, what is said this morning is hopefully said in a way that is helpful for us to approach this table of communion. As we celebrate communion, everything that is said this morning hopefully will encourage us to humbly come to this table. So go ahead and look at these elements that are here before us, um, in front of us. And as we think about marriage and what it really means to be married... Be mindful of how you approach the Lord's table. I just want to say up front also that the goal is not to fix your marriage. I think the goal this morning and for this whole series has been just to set the big thing right. So I'm going to do my best to set the big thing right in marriage. And hopefully by the end of all this, that will become clear for you as well. Um, I want to begin by talking about my own marriage. I am married, Libby and I have been married for 13 years, and uh, personally, my marriage is something that I'm still learning about day to day and week to week. It's something that I don't have all figured out, this whole idea of marriage, but it is something that um, because I have Libby and because our marriage is founded in Christ, um, I can come to you confidently with the word on marriage. And... uh, If you are Facebook friends with me or Libby, you may have noticed some back and forth this past Tuesday um, on our status updates on Facebook. Last Tuesday night, Pastor John and I headed down to Washington, D.C., and we spent the night um, at the U2 concert in Washington, D.C., and we just had an awesome time. Beforehand, we met with a pastor down there, and it was just a great time that he and I had together, and we had a lot of fun. So that's it was incredible. You know, the lighting was all cool and everything, and we had a lot of fun. And I was updating my uh, Facebook status, like just saying, oh, you too, that, you know, we're having such a great time here. And, you know, I was texting what songs were being played. And um, so that was happening on my Facebook status updates. But uh, if you go to the next page, <laughs> this, is, this is the um, picture of our bed with folded laundry, which is really cool to have in our house. But um, this, Libby posted this picture last Tuesday night. You can go back in her Facebook status and see this. Um, and it was just funny because here she was at home with our four kids folding laundry. And here I was in D.C., you know, having a good old time. And um, the reason I show that is just to kind of sometimes I think we just need to laugh at how our marriages can get out of balance. But also, even more importantly, I think we need to be careful that we don't um, think about our marriages in the context of like one evening. Now, sometimes in one evening you can destroy your marriage, but in the day-to-day things, um, 
one day does not define your marriage. So I would say with Libby and I, I think our marriage is, was not defined by that one Facebook night, but it, it's defined by weeks that we learn to love each other in new ways and weeks and years that we learn to um, submit to each other in marriage and try to discover together what that is. So I'm not exactly sure why I showed all that, but, but I think it, it does prove a point that, um, that marriage is a good thing to talk about for all of us, including myself. Before we jump into the scripture, I want to think about this one thing, and that is I want you to think about what formed your idea of marriage. And this would be the time where you can participate, at least in your mind, and think critically and reflectively of your own life. Go back to your earliest memory in marriage and think about what formed that picture of marriage for you. And I think, even if I just give you a few seconds to think on that, it, it very, I'm sure the, maybe the first place that you think of is this image of marriage that your parents set forth for you. And maybe that was dysfunctional or maybe it was beautiful. But those were the early things that started to form your idea of marriage. And then I want you to think about a second question. And now that you are mature and now that you are moving along in life, what is informing your idea of marriage right now in your life? What's informing it? What's adding to that picture of marriage? And, you know, hopefully this morning we can let Scripture inform us. There are so many things in the world that do inform us, some good, some bad. But um, Scripture is where we want our marriages to be formed out of. Um, And then, again, before we go into Scripture, I just want to acknowledge that marriages in this room are at different places. And not everyone here is married. But I I know there's a word for you also. But for the marriages that are in this room... um, I just want to say that at some level, we are all broken in our marriages. We're all sinful. And in our marriages is when um, your spouse sees the worst side of you. I mean, just think about that, right? Who has seen the very worst part of you as a person? It's probably, if you're married, it's probably your spouse. And um, I think often we let that brokenness and that dysfunctionality in marriage, we let that define what, we, what, what marriage is to us. And I want to encourage us that we don't want to rest in that brokenness. So I'd encourage you, if you're married and you feel like your marriage is strong and built on the Lord, I would encourage you to listen this morning to what the Lord has to say about marriage. And if you're married and your marriage is struggling, maybe it's even worse, just hanging on by a thread, I would encourage you to listen to what the Lord has to say about marriage. And if your marriage is just getting started, I know we have quite a few couples that have been married for weeks even, or a year, or a couple years. If your marriage is is just something new that you're discovering, um, listen to what the Lord has to say on marriage. And now if you're single in this room and you have intentions of being married someday, like that's one of your hopes that you're aspiring to, um, I hope that you can listen to what the Lord has to say on marriages. And also if you're single in this room and you have no intention of being married again uh, or ever, um, 
And I acknowledge that you may be sitting in the hardest place when it comes to marriage. But I also acknowledge that, and I want to encourage you to listen to what the Lord has to say on marriage. Please pray with me. Father, we do humbly come to you, and we know that um, our marriages are important to you. And uh, we also know in this room that our marriages are important to each of us, whether we're single or married. Uh, Marriage is something that's spiritual in nature, and we want to lift it up to you this morning. We ask that whatever is said would be to your glory and that your spirit would speak um, to us this morning through your word and through my words. And I pray that as we approach this table, that we would approach it with a new understanding of marriage and a new comfort in who you are as our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I want to set the big thing right in marriage, and that's this whole series has been kind of like, let's set the big thing right, you know, when, when it comes to whatever these ideas are, sexuality or marriage, let's try to set the big thing right. And that's kind of my goal, and I want to kind of walk us along that. But I want us to go back to Genesis chapter 2, so you can turn there. And as you're turning there, I just want to mention, before we set this big thing right, we need to go back to the beginning and back to where this idea of marriage was first introduced in Scripture. This whole idea of marriage started in the garden and even before sin was even a reality in the life of humanity. So we're in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. And this passage of Scripture has been read almost every week for the last five weeks. And it's worth reading again. So we're in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from a rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What's going on in Adam's heart when he first sees Eve? Pastor John reminded us uh, a couple weeks ago that Adam was so struck by Eve that he just responded in this poetic, prophetic passion, right? And um, often we think of Adam, when we go back in history, we think he's the first dude and we think he's the first guy. We kind of minimize his intelligence. We minimize uh, maybe his understanding of humanity or the Lord, but His um, comments about Eve are so high-order comments. It's poetry. It's stating this thing that is almost out of this world. And he recognizes that for the first time, he sees someone that is just like him. And all he can do is say this poetic thing. And these are the first words that we have of of him recorded. Um, But I think it's interesting, and this is where we're headed into marriage, is if I want you to place yourself in Adam's situation. 
And he just says this thing, and he's like, wow, I cannot believe this is before me. I can't believe she's here. I can't believe she's just like me. And he's like, ah, and he says, says this poetry, right? And then um, I can imagine that even Adam at this point is like, you know, what, now what? You know, now what does this mean for me? What does this mean for Eve? What does this mean for us as two people that recognize this? And that's what we see um, this next phrase coming up. And I think this next phrase is helpful to think about it this way. I like to think of this next phrase as the technology behind the poetry or this idea that this next phrase is going to put into practice and put into um, covenantal language what this relationship was just spoken about. So let's look at that in verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. For this reason, the reason that um, the text is referring to is just this: what Adam just said. Um, and it's the kind of idea that, uh, like I said, it's just this technology behind this poetry. It's like, let's put this into practice. Uh, I'd just like to point out a couple things about this, this phrase. Um, the idea of a father or a man leaving his father and being united to his wife, the verbs that are used in that phrase, are it's very strong language. Even our English just doesn't do it justice to how strong these words are. And, you know, we say, like, oh, he left his father and he was united to his wife. And we, we just take all the thunder and all the excitement out of those words. But in Scripture, those two words um, were really used in the context of the relationship between Israel and the Lord. Um, so let's look at those. That first verb, to leave, it really has behind that word leave is the idea of forsaking. So the, for a man to forsake his father is not just to like leave and walk away, but it's to break away from the family in such a way that it elevates the marriage. Um, so we see in Jeremiah 1.16, the same word forsaking. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness and forsaking me in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. So this idea of forsaking is Israel is rejecting or forsaking this covenant relationship between the Lord. Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And equally as strong is this next idea of to be united or to cling or to hold fast, to hold tightly onto something. We see the same language being used between the nation of Israel and God. Deuteronomy 4.4, but all of you who held fast to the Lord, your God, are still alive today. Deuteronomy 10.20, fear the Lord, your God, and serve him. Hold fast to him and he will take your oaths in his name. Deuteronomy 30.20, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. You see that this phrase, a man forsaking his father and holding fast to his wife, that's covenantal language. And it's always been that way in Scripture. And from the very beginning, it was that way. Um, it's almost as if, you know, there was this thing that Scripture just needed to release. 
um, this idea that was released. I mean, there's not even a father or a mother to speak of, and yet they're spoken of. Leave your father? He's not even there yet. I mean, he has his father as the Lord. Leave your father? But the earthly relationship is not even there yet of father and son, and yet it's spoken of. So, at this point, I think it's also interesting, and here's a little twist that I just want to add to this whole thing, is that um, put yourself again in Adam's shoes. He just hears about this uh, covenantal idea of relationship, and he's called, Eve is called his wife. Um, But just to have fun with this a little bit, at this point, were Adam and Eve dating? (laughs) I mean, to even ask that question is silly, right? I mean, um, he speaks this word of like substance, and then there's this technology or this covenant of marriage that's spoken about. And um, nowhere in there do you see anything about compatibility or um, this idea that uh, Adam, when he saw Eve, um, you know, he, he didn't think like, oh, I wonder what she likes, or I wonder if she's into the same things that I am. I wonder if she likes to to walk on the same side of the garden as I do. Or I wonder if she likes to play with the same types of dangerous animals that I like to play with. I mean, it's, it's not even hinted in the text. In fact, we don't even know if he's even heard her voice yet. Um, all we know is that he's seen her and he's noticed that she's this light substance. And um, so I'm sorry to say that Genesis doesn't give us a good theology for dating. I mean, it's just not there. And even all of Scripture... It's very difficult to support this idea of dating that we've all, most of us have grown up with. But I do want to mention dating because I know that that's very critical um, in the way that our idea of marriage is formed. So I think it's important to speak to it, especially for our young people that are single and have marriage in their future. So I want to say a couple words on dating. The idea of dating is only about 100 years old and... It's mostly a Western idea. It's something that I think if you think about some of the dating relationships that you've had, dating often is pretty disastrous in what it does to relationships between men and women. And, and yet that's the reality that we're growing up with. Um, listen to this quote from 1920. In 1920, this is how dating was described. Okay, so this is 1920. Dating is informal, casual, unchaperoned male-female interaction with no specific commitment. The rules were not established by the community or the family, but by the peer group. What happened in 1920 is once jazz was around and once there, there was a little bit more freedom in, in terms of the way that people connected with each other, dating became more of a destination or a thing to do outside of the home. And it became more peer-driven and all the rules were set by the peers. And that's most of the reality that we grew up with. But before that, I mean, uh, dating was, was not even, did not even exist, and, and the ideas around it of, of, peer, of peers setting the rules just wasn't there. It was a family ordeal from the beginning. And um, so I do want to say that. But if you are in that situation of dating, I just want to speak a word over you and just say that everyone in this room has been in a similar situation a lot of us have dated growing up, most of us. Libby and I started dating when we were seniors in high school, and, and then we got married when, after I graduated college. But um, 
she's the only person that I've ever dated in my whole life, which I think is kind of cool. And so you may think, uh, you know, that I, have, I know nothing about dating, which could be true. But, or you may think that maybe I, I know exactly what I'm doing with dating because I got it right the first time. Um, but I think that's just the Lord uh, working through some of our own mistakes. And certainly the Lord has worked through some of the mistakes that I've made in my past, even with Libby. Um, but this idea of dating, I just want to speak over two things to you people that are single and have this in your future. Um, first, I want to remind you again that marriage is a covenant relationship. We just saw this in Scripture. And that's more of a warning to you, really, because um, we think we have such a low view sometimes socially of how we interact with each other between men and women that you just need to keep that in mind. Your marriage, your future marriage, is a covenant relationship between you and that person and the Lord. And then here's some advice. Um, and this is easier said than done, but I want to say it anyway. Um, when you date and when you're, when you're young and with, when you're with the opposite sex, please do whatever you can to not make your relationship look like one. And I think when it comes to dating in our society, that's kind of where we go wrong, and we all do this to some level. As a couple, we try to look like one couple. We, we try to look and do the same things, even physically the way that we show affection publicly, the way that we um, share deep things with each other. A lot of that really should be done only in the context of this covenant of marriage. And, uh, you know, a lot of us have gotten that wrong very early on in our relationships. So I want to say that. I hope that's an encouragement. I know it's hard to put into practice, but I want to say that to you because I think it's important. So from Genesis, we learned that marriage is a covenant. And now I'd like to move towards this big idea that I'd like to kind of put on top of that. So we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. So you can start to turn there. And it makes sense that we go here to Ephesians chapter 5 because um, this exact thing was quoted in Ephesians 5. So it, like, it makes sense that we go there. And also, when you talk about marriage, most people go to Ephesians chapter 5 because it's kind of like the place to go. Um, there are other places, but this is one of the main places to go when it talks about marriage. So I want to build on the idea of marriage as a covenant, but I, I want to go beyond that and, and kind of hopefully build, build on that. Um, we're in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of this body, and then look at this. Where have we heard this? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, 
and the wife must respect her husband. Wow, this is a heavy teaching, and I just I want us to, rather than get caught up in all of this language, I just want us to think on two things as men and women and as husbands and wives. First, as wives, I want us to think on this verse 24. Look at what he says in verse 24. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to your husbands. You think about that picture. That's a very radical picture when it comes to marriage. And I don't know how to make that seem practical or applicable, but I do know that it's here. Um, and when, when I thought about this part, I talked to Libby because I want to get this part right for women. And I want to do my best to do that. So her and I talked a lot about this idea. What does it mean as a wife to submit to your husband like the church submits to Christ? Um, I mean, that's a really, really big idea. And so in, in talking about it, we decided, well, let's think about what did the church do as, as we submit to Christ as the church? What, is, what do we do when we submit? And we kind of came up with three things. And there's more, but these are the things that just kind of jump out right at the front. When, when the church submits to the Lord, we die to our own will. And I would just like to say, I know that's um, a hard thing when, in the context of marriage, but even as a Christian, when, you, when your will dies to the will of Christ, I mean, that's a thing that happens over the span of your life with Christ. I mean, it's not like you just, boom, you just do it and it's done. The idea of dying to our own will over a period of time as the church responds to Christ is something that sometimes takes years. And it definitely takes years to really understand the depth of that. So wives, um, think about that. And then the second thing is, as the church, we follow Christ in hard times and when direction is unclear. I mean, think about your own Christian life. Um, I'm sure if you're really authentically following Christ, it's very unclear sometimes um, where he's leading you. And it's very hard sometimes to follow him in a direction that you just don't understand at the time. And then thirdly, I think as the church, one of the things that we do by submitting to the Lord is that we show him off. We show off Christ. When we get it right, at the very best point when we get it right, we show off Christ, which is just really cool. Um, so there's a few things for wives and the idea of this idea of church submitting to the Lord. But then in verse 25, um, we hear just the exact um, flip side comment of that. Husbands, just love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, does he say that we should love Christ or we should love our wives um, kind of like Christ loved the church or, you know, in a sort of a replica kind of way? No, he says, love your wife just as I love the church or as Christ loves the church. Um, and again, that's such a big idea that in the context of marriage, it's like, ah, oh, are you serious? I have to think about this. But it is such a big idea that we do need to think about it. So how did Christ submit? Um, or how did, he, how did he give himself up? And how does he love us, the church? And, and again, the first things are very obvious. 
He died for us. And somehow, by his death, we are made holy. And I think those are the two obvious things that come right up front. Um, So men, as husbands, what does that mean? That you would die to your wife and that you would make her holy. And this idea that you would make your wife holy, this idea kind of went through my mind quite a bit because I was thinking, um, you know, Christ makes people holy, not other people. And that's true. Um, But yet there is this responsibility in the covenant of marriage that men have for the holiness of their wives. And I want to back this up by scripture. I don't want to just say that because that's just crazy. Um, It's crazy in a worldly sort of way, but not in a godly sort of way. But if you look at verse 25, right? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, how does he describe that love? Look how he goes on. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So I think that's a reality of Scripture that um, we need to just give time to let that idea set in. But I think as men, that's the one thing that we constantly get wrong in marriage. This idea that we would be responsible for our wives being holy before the Lord. I mean, even in dating relationships, it's usually the guy that is pressuring the girl to go a little bit further. We do anything but, but make her holy. We defile her. And even in our marriages, um, I mean, let's be honest, it's the men that bring the deep, dark things into the marriage when it comes to unholiness in the bedroom. And I say that to say that as a man, that's our responsibility to bring holiness into the marriage in such a way um, that we exhort our wives. We don't make her holy like Christ makes people holy, but there is this level of responsibility of holiness within the marriage that this text speaks to. And this gets us really close to this big thing that I want to set right in marriage. And I just want to go there now and and just let this preach. Um, Verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. And the mistake that we often make in this passage is that we stop right there. We say that this picture of a husband and a wife becoming one flesh is a profound mystery. You know, if you think about marriage conferences, you know, they'll just drag this text um, all around our marriages, but they'll leave this part out. And this is the most um, important part of this whole passage. If we miss this, we miss the whole point. Um, The profound mystery is not that we as husband and wife become one, even though that is mystery. But that's not the profound mystery. Do you see this? The profound mystery is that Christ and the church become one. That's the profound mystery. And that's in marriage, that's the thing that we need to, um, it, at our best, or by doing our best, we need to attempt to get that right. Um, and rather than reflecting some 
thing in this world. We need to reflect that picture of Christ in the church in our marriages. And I just I can't help but get a little bit excited about that idea because imagine if we could put that idea into reality and into our marriages if um, wives loved their husbands in such a way that actually looked like the church loving Christ and we kind of opened the doors of our marriages and kind of like let that show out to the world. Um, just think about the story that that would tell the world about the church. And likewise, men, if we could love our wives in such a way um, that it was this death to ourselves that we would die on behalf of our wife like Christ died for the church, um, if we put that somehow into practice and we open the doors on our marriages and let the world see that, um, the reality of the gospel that could be shown through that is, is just exciting. So that's the big thing. And I want to say it one more time, just so it can stand out. The, this mystery that Christ and the church are one, that's the image that's worth reflecting in our marriages. And in our marriages, that's the big thing that we need to get right. And I just want to end with this one idea. If we're looking for a way for this to happen in real life, um, this idea of us dying to our wives and our wives submitting to us as the church, um, I think if we're looking for an order, I think men go first. I'll just put it out there. I think men, we need to die first to our wives. And I think that that will set the example for our wives to reciprocate um, by responding as the church does to Christ. And I think we can back this up in Scripture. In Romans chapter 5, verse 7, think about this in the context of marriage. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I think as men, we need to, in some way, try to put that into practice. Um, and then finally, I'd like to say, you may be thinking, as a married person, that um, this picture of Christ in the church doesn't really fit in with the picture of your marriage. But, but then you may add to that and say, you know what, but my marriage is actually good. My marriage feels good. It feels like we love each other. And what I would say to that is, um, well, first I would say marriage is not about making things work, right? I mean, that's what the world tries to do, is they try to make marriage work. Um, but marriage is about reflecting this image of Christ in the church. And if your marriage doesn't reflect that in any sort of way, then I think something needs to change. And I'd also just like to end with this um, idea that uh, there are not like five simple steps to making your marriage healthy. You know, there may just be one step, simple step is implementing this idea. There may not be like three keys to finding the, per the perfect mate for you or the perfect um, husband or wife. But there are things that we need to do in our marriage that are practical and that are important 
and that are small steps. So I just want to lay this out for us as a challenge. Um, Men, I want to encourage you to initiate prayer with your wife sometime this week. And I I don't think you can get any more practical than that. And I don't think that that's going to hurt any of our marriages. So I think whether your marriage is the strongest glue that's out there or it's the weakest thing um, that you think exists, um, initiate prayer with your wife. And for wives, I don't know how to tell you how to love your husband in such a way that the church loves Christ. Um, And I don't have a practical step for you to take. But I know that you're imaginative. And what I would say to you is do something radical in your marriage that at least attempts to demonstrate this idea that you love your husband like the church loves Christ. And that's where we want to end this morning with radical love. As we approach this communion table, um, I would like to pray over us uh, as pray over our marriages and pray over um, people that have been married who are no longer married because of circumstance um, or tragedy. And I want to pray over single people as we look forward to marriage. And I want to lift us up in the context of coming to this table around this idea of marriage. So please pray with me. Father, I just ask that um, you would allow our marriages to reflect this picture of um, your son, Christ, loving the church as husbands and of the church loving Christ as his bride and his brides in this room. And God, I do lift up our marriages. I know at some level there's brokenness in our marriages. Some of it's deep and dark. Um, But God, we do ask that you would allow our marriages to be defined by this image and not by uh, the darkness that's there. And God, I pray for the single people here as they look forward to marriage. I pray that you would Allow them to, um, early in their years, understand the covenant of marriage so they can protect themselves. And God, for those who um, are no longer married, who maybe still would like to be, um, but because of circumstance or tragedy, um, things are different. And we recognize that that could be the, still the hardest place to sit. And we just lift that up to you. And we thank you that um, this image is still true, um, even for marriages that are broken. And God, as we come to this table, we're reminded in Scripture that when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. And we look forward to that day when you will return for your bride, the church. But even now, may our marriages be even a poor reflection of this idea. Jesus is coming back for his pure bride. He's coming for a pure bride. 
Father, we also know that the best place we can end this morning is at this communion table where we celebrate a meal that helps us remember your sacrifice, your death, and your resurrection. The best place we can apply this word on marriage is right here at this table. It's around this table that as a community we gather and we remember the price that was paid, the cost that was absorbed by Jesus himself for the forgiveness of sins and our wickedness and for the reconciliation of us to himself. Father, may we approach this table in humility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.